0: That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W dot com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald Scotland, Wednesday 13th October 2021. Covid Scotland. Excess winter deaths higher during flu spike three years ago than during pandemic. By Helen McCardo health correspondent. Flu and respiratory diseases contributed to a bigger spike in winter deaths three years ago than that recorded during December to March this year, in spite of the COVID outbreak. Scotland recorded the second highest seasonal increase in mortality for more than 20 years last winter, according to a new report from the National Records of Scotland with COVID blamed for almost two-thirds of the additional deaths. However, the increase was actually lower compared to the 2017 18 winter and comes amid signs that the long term downward trend dating back to the 1950s has been slowing down over the past decade. Winter deaths are recorded as the difference between the total number of deaths registered during the four month period from December to March each year compared to the average for the two four month periods before and after winter. In 2020 21, Therefore, there were 4,330 extra deaths compared to the combined average for August to November 2020 and April to July 2021. This was the second highest figure since 1999-2000. Of these, 2,850 recorded COVID-19 as a cause of death. The other causes of death with the largest seasonal increases last winter were dementia and Alzheimer's disease and coronary heart disease, both with 210 additional deaths each. Very few deaths were directly due to cold weather such as hypothermia, while mental, behavioural and nervous system conditions resulted in 70 additional deaths and cancer accounted for 60. Accidental of falls was recorded as the underlying cause of 50 additional deaths. In 2017-18, however, there were an additional 4,810 deaths during the winter with a spike in flu deaths during early 2018 along with pneumonia, heart disease, dementia and strokes contributing to the surge. The period from January and March 2018 saw a 36% increase year on year in respiratory deaths to 2,855 of which 331 were deaths from influenza. This compared to an average of 34 flu deaths during the same three-month period between 2008 and 2017. The figure remains a far cry from the peak of 9,170 extra deaths during the winter of 1958-59 and the average seasonal increase during the 1950s and 60s of 5,200 winter deaths. Over the past decade, the figure has averaged 2,600, However, the National Records of Scotland, who compiled the report, noted the figures from the most recent years suggest a departure from the long-term downward trend. It added, it is not clear whether this will continue, as there have been similar increasing periods in the past which were followed by a return to the longer-term decreasing trend. Older age groups are consistently affected most by the winter increase in mortality, a pattern reinforced by the pandemic. During December 2020 to March 2021, of those aged 85 and over, there were 13 additional deaths per 1,000 of the population, compared with fewer than one death per 1,000 amongst those aged under 65. Peter Whitehouse, Director of Statistical Services at the NRS, said, These figures show again the significant impact COVID-19 had in Scotland last winter. Compared to the average of the previous five winters, the winter of 2020-21, saw a 10% higher level of mortality, with the majority of additional deaths being due to COVID-19. The Scottish Government has earmarked £300 million extra for the NHS and social care in Scotland this winter. But Health Secretary Humza Yousaf warned of severe pressure from COVID, a potential resurgence of flu, and treatment backlogs. Labour Health spokeswoman Jackie Bailey warned that Scotland was on track for another winter catastrophe with a e waiting times already at a record high. She said we must do everything possible to make sure we don't see this scale of devastation again, but as it stands, we are woefully unprepared. Scottish Lib Dem leader Alex Cole Hamilton added last year mortality soared as we were struck by a once in a century global pandemic. This was made all the worse by a lack of preparation and a series of questionable ministerial decisions. This year, with vaccines on hand and months to prepare, SNP ministers will not have the same excuse. This article was written by Helen McArdle. The Herald Scotland, Wednesday 13th October 2021. SNP urged to delay enforcement of flawed vaccine passport scheme. By Alastair Grant, political correspondent. SNP ministers have been urged to delay the enforcement of their fundamentally flawed vaccine passport scheme until next year. The Scottish Tories outlined a series of changes to fix the policy before businesses are forced ever closer to a devastating cliff edge. The party's economy spokeswoman, Liz Smith, insisted it is still not too late for the SNP to start listening. Scotland's vaccine passport scheme was launched at the start of the month, with people having to prove they are double-jabbed to internet clubs and many other large events. But opposition politicians branded it an embarrassment after a mobile phone app to support the rollout was plagued with technical problems. The Scottish Government previously said the scheme will not be enforced until Monday, October 18th. The Tories are now calling on SNP ministers to delay the introduction of the system until at least after the new year to allow venues time to prepare. The party also wants the definition of a nightclub to be revised to only include late night venues which remain open after 2am and which are already likely to have trained door staff as proposed by the Scottish Hospitality Group. Elsewhere, it called for a spot check system to be introduced in bars and nightclubs rather than staff checking every customer. And for the percentage of attendees who must be spot checked at large events to be significantly reduced. Ms. Smith said if the SNP refused to scrap their vaccine passport scheme, then they must now fix the fundamental flaws that have come to the fore over the past two weeks. These have occurred when businesses don't even have to legally enforce it. The launch of this scheme has been an unmitigated disaster. Businesses are no more ready to implement the SNP's unworkable plans today than a fortnight ago. A Scottish Government spokesman said the certification scheme is a proportionate way of encouraging people to get vaccinated and also of helping large events and nighttime hospitality to keep operating during what will potentially be a very difficult winter. He said, we have allowed a grace period for the first two weeks of the scheme in relation to enforcement while businesses and users become accustomed to the new rules. During this period, we expect businesses to implement and test their approach to certification and to prepare their compliance plans so that they are fully prepared by October 18th. It is important to remember the app isn't the only means of providing proof. People can also present evidence of their vaccination status via the downloadable PDF or a paper copy accessible from NHS Inform. Well over three-quarters of a million of these have already been issued. Thousands of people have been able to set up their apps successfully. However, no one should be turned away from a late-night venue or large-scale event if they don't have their proof of vaccination, given enforcement doesn't begin until April 18th. This article
1: was written by Alistair Grant. Recorded from the Herald on the 13th of October 2021 from the Sports Section Aribo, Balagan and Bassi could miss five Rangers games with Africa Cup of Nations by Ewan Payton. Joe Arabo, Leon Balligan, and Calvin Bassi could potentially miss up to five Rangers games later this season due to their international commitments. Early next year, the Jers trio are set to take part in the Africa Cup of Nations with Nigeria. The Continental Tournament starts at the turn of the year on January 9th. The final is scheduled for February 6th. In that period Rangers have three fixtures on the cards. They will face Livingston at Ibrox on January 26th away to Ross County on January 29th and at home to Hearts on February 5th. The fourth round of the Scottish Cup is also due to be played on the weekend of January 22nd with Rangers and the rest of the Premiership sides entering at this stage. If Nigeria make it all the way to the final it's probable all three players will need some time off to recover almost certainly ruling them out of the next Game to at home to Hibs on February 9th. The first knockout stages runs from January 23rd to 25th, with the quarters from 29th to 30th and the semis a few days later on February 2nd and 3rd. That article is by Ewan Payton. Recorded from the Herald on the 13th of October 2021, from the Sports section, Rangers boss Stephen Gerrard will be friend upon by Newcastle due to his inexperience. Aidan Smith. John Barnes believes Newcastle will not consider Stephen Gerrard to be their next manager due to the Rangers boss being inexperienced. Gerrard has been linked with a move to St James's Park with Steve Bruce expected to be relieved of his duties as soon as this weekend. The Liverpool legend was among the bookies' favourites for the Toon Gig, but now current Leicester City manager Brendan Rodgers is in pole position. Barnes reckons Gerrard would only move south if it was going to his beloved Anfield and commenting on the Newcastle speculation, he said, Why would Newcastle look to bring a relatively inexperienced manager like Stephen Gerrard? That is purely media talk. Stephen Gerrard is doing a great job as Rangers manager, but that is where he should stay for the time being. If he aspires to manage Liverpool, which everyone is certain he does, will going to Newcastle help that? Not necessarily. Newcastle will choose an experienced manager who has done it all. Perhaps Antonio Conte, who is a more proven manager at the very highest level. Only when the Liverpool job becomes available for Steven Gerrard is when we will see him manage a club in England. That is all he wants to do. If Newcastle offered him the position that would be a fantastic move for Steven as well, but they'll be looking for someone with more experience who has managed at the very highest level, either in England or in the Champions League. I just cannot see Newcastle going with someone of limited experience. Unless, of course, they go for a stopgap, which neither Stephen, Gerrard nor Frank Lampard will be. Gerrard and Rangers currently lead the Scottish Premiership table, with Celtic lingering in mid-table. Ange Postecoglou came in over the summer, and there's been glimpses of improvement under the Aussie. Barnes reckons his former club will be there or thereabouts come the end of the season, but he thinks Rangers are forced to be reckoned with. He added, "Rangers and Celtic are the two favourites to win the Scottish Premiership as always." Rangers are slight favourites because, with Celtic bringing a new manager in, that can take some time. Celtic have had a few poor results, but Rangers also haven't hit top form, yet they are top of the league. Rangers won't run away with it as they did last year. It'll be tighter and there are other sides doing well. But come the end of the season, it'll be between the two of them, Rangers and Celtic. That article was by Aidan Smith.
2: Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday, 13th of October 2021. Arts and Entertainments Paul McCartney and How John Lennon Split the Beatles by Barry Didcock, Senior Features Writer In a BBC interview, Sir Paul McCartney seems finally to have spilled the beans in the band's breakup. What did he say? He claimed he did not instigate the 1970 split. That was our Johnny, he said. John walked into the room one day and said, I'm leaving the Beatles. And he said, it's quite thrilling. It's rather like a divorce. And then we were left to pick up the pieces. Sir so Paul added, I thought we were doing some pretty good stuff, Abbey Road, let it be, not bad, and I thought we could continue. Who did he say it to? Broadcaster John Wilson, for an episode of Radio Programme, This Cultural Life, to be aired on BBC Radio 4 in October 23. With a scoop like that, the BBC is understandably breaking the news early. Wilson goes on to ask him whether the band would have continued if Lennon hadn't walked away. Sir so Paul replied, It could have... The point of it really was that John was making a new life with Yoko. So that's that then? Yes and no. In press material accompanying the release in April 1970 of McCartney, his first solo album, the Beatles bassist interviewed himself. Asked if he could see the Lennon-McCartney songwriting partnership becoming active again, he said no. And though he admitted he wasn't sure if the break from the Beatles was temporary or permanent, he did talk about the band's personal, business and musical differences and added, I have a better time with my family. What did the press say to that? Predictably it was headline news. Paul quits the Beatles, screamed the Daily Mirror front page on Friday, April 10, 1970. From that came the popular belief that it was still Sir Paul who jumped ship first. So he did instigate it. Again, yes and no. Lennon had been making contradictory statements for some months about leaving the Beatles. Quoted in Rolling Stone, editor Jan Venners, 1971 book Lennon Remembers, he said he made the decision to leave in September 1969 on his way to Toronto to perform with the Plastic Ono Band. I announced it to myself and to the people around me. He says he also told Alan Klein, the Beatles' manager. But a few months later in January 1970 he told a journalist in Denmark that the band wasn't splitting, adding, but we're breaking its image. It's confusing. It is. Sir Paul says, Klein didn't want the news of Lennon's departure to break while new contracts were being negotiated, because it would harm certain business interests. So for a few months we had to pretend, he tells Wilson. It was weird because we all knew it was the end of the Beatles, but we couldn't just walk away. By Barry Didcock. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 13th of October 2021. Arts and Entertainments. The Responsibility of Love by J. David Simons. The Purpose of Power by Alicia Garza. Welcome to Cooper by Tariq Ashkenani Paperback Reviews by Alistair Mabbett. The Responsibility of Love, J. David Simons. Backpage Press, £9.99. Tonight Jake Tully will find out if he's won a prestigious literary prize, and he's got a good feeling about it. In his pocket is an excoriating acceptance speech, with which he intends to settle a few scores at the televised ceremony. But before he even gets there, he gashes his hand, his son is arrested, and he assaults a member of the public. Simons has created a memorable character in the brash but sensitive author interspersing the setbacks of his big day with flashbacks revealing the wounds he carried around and those he's inflicted in others. In an irony lost on no one, least of all himself, the theme of Jake's shortlisted novel is the responsibilities we have to those who love us. Simon skillfully handles the delicate balancing act of romping through the comical misshape of Jake's whiskey and codeine-fuel day while eliciting sympathy for his well-realised protagonist. The purpose of power, Alicia Garza, Penguin, £9.99 One of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, Alicia Garza grew up in Northern California, watched the 1992 LA riots on TV, and writes here about her inspirations and the path that led to the creation of BLM. More importantly, she draws on her 20 plus years of experience as an activist, to examine the steps needed to create a sustainable movement which can progress from protesting to acquiring political power and bringing about social change. Social media is no substitute for solid organisation and community involvement, she insists, while discussing how to negotiate the pitfalls of activism such as internal power struggles, the lack of women in leadership positions and people who are reluctant to act in their own interest. With racial and generational discontent growing on a global scale, the wisdom and advice in this book will assist progressive movements of all kinds to function more effectively. Welcome to Cooper, Tariq Ashkenani Thomas and Mercer, £8.99. After ratting out his drug dealing partner, Detective Thomas Levine has been transferred from Washington DC to the Nowheresville of Cooper, Nebraska where in his first day, a woman is found dead with her eyes gouged out. In a shocking twist, his new partner shoots a suspect with Levine's gun, entrapping him into joining in the illegal activities of the town's corrupt cops. Neil Killer is still out there somewhere, but Levine now has to contend with his own colleagues in a ruthless drug cartel too. Ominous and compelling from the start, this debut novel from an Edinburgh solicitor nails the blunt, noirish prose of the hard-boiled thriller. It's a gritty, murky story in which even the hero doesn't come out well. Haunted by his responsibility for his girlfriend's drug-induced death, his betrayal of his old partner, and the selfish streak that leads him to make a questionable, fateful choice. By Alistair Mabbett.
3: The Herald, Thursday the 14th of October 2021. News. COP26 Bunting delivered to Glasgow businesses in plastic bags. This article is by Caroline Wilson. It aimed to showcase Glasgow's world-famous warm welcome and sustainable city credentials to delegates arriving from the UN Climate Change Conference from every corner of the globe. Businesses were being encouraged to mark the Milestone 12-day event, which gets underway in just over two weeks by decorating buildings with specially designed COP26-branded bunting. However, the packages which have been distributed to 155 firms across the city, appear to be slightly out of step with the ethos of the event. While the indoor and outdoor bunting is made from eco-friendly materials, the decorations were delivered to businesses in plastic bags. A COP26 official admitted, it wasn't our intention to use the bags and was encouraging firms to take them to larger supermarkets to be recycled. Marketing officials write, To show your support for the COP26 summit, we have created an environmentally friendly branding pack for you to dress your premises. We would be pleased if you could put this up at your earliest convenience. A spokesman for Get Ready Glasgow said Bunting has been delivered to 155 local firms as part of the preparations for COP26. It was delivered in plastic bags. This wasn't our intention, but the bags can be recycled at larger supermarkets along with carrier bags. A spokesperson for the Scottish Greens said, COP26 is an opportunity for all public organisations and agencies to examine their sustainability practices, including the use of unnecessary plastics, so this reflection is welcome. This article is by Caroline Wilson. The Herald, Thursday the 14th of October 2021. News. Millionaire Tory donor Malcolm Offord takes his seat in House of Lords. This article is by Tom Gordon. The millionaire financier and failed election candidate who was made a Scotland office minister after donating almost £150,000 to the Tories has taken his seat in the House of Lords. Malcolm Offord was introduced as Baron Offord of Garville of Greenock in the county of Renfrewshire this morning. He was given the life peerage in order to act as an unelected minister. The SNP said it was cronyism and a bypassing of democracy. Wearing full ermine, Lord Offord was introduced by Thatcherite former Scottish Secretary, Lord Mike Forsyth, and fellow businessman and Tory donor, Lord Kirkham, founder of the DFS furniture chain. In a brief ceremony, he swore the oath of allegiance to the monarch, then signed the test roll, the parchment book in which all new MPs and Lords put their names. He said, "'I, Malcolm, Lord Offord of Garville, do swear by Almighty God that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, her heirs and successors according to law. So help me God.' His ennoblement has proved highly controversial for the Scottish Tories, who are trying to position themselves as the party of Scotland's working class. Boris Johnson overlooked two of his Scottish MPs to parachute Mr Offord into the Scotland office as a minister after sacking Banff and Buchanan MP David Dugawood. Mr Offord, 57, tried unsuccessfully to become an MSP at the recent Holyrood election, failing to secure the candidacy in Edinburgh Central, then failing to get elected as fifth on the Lothians list. In 2014, Mr Offord set up the pro-union No Borders campaign to give ordinary people a chance to express their support for the union rather than leave it to politicians. According to Electoral Commission records, he has given the Conservative Party and its MPs £147,500 since 2007, as well as giving the No Borders campaign another £20,000. Mr Offord has taken his title from part of his native Greenock, where he was state educated before studying law at Edinburgh University and moving into banking. He has already started work as a minister, but today's ceremony means he is also now an active member of the Upper House. SMP shadow leader of the House of Commons, Pete Wishart MP, said Voters across Scotland will be dismayed that despite being rejected at the 2019 election, Malcolm Offord has secured a peerage and an unelected place in Boris Johnson's government. It would seem that if you have deep pockets and are willing to help Boris Johnson and his cronies, you can bypass the democratic system. Whether it's handing out lucrative COVID contracts to friends and contracts, giving a Tory donor a peerage and appointing him to the Scotland office, or stuffing the House of Lords with cronies, this Tory government is driven entirely by cronyism, self-interest and sleaze. The Westminster system is broken beyond repair. The only way we can protect Scotland from the Tories and finally rid ourselves of an undemocratic House of Lords is by becoming an independent country. This article is by Tom Gordon.
1: Recorded from the Herald on the 14th of October 2021 from the sports section. Celtic provide vaccine passports update for fans attending Vernaucovirus clash by Ewan Payton. Celtic have confirmed that fans will need to be doubly vaccinated against coronavirus to attend their next Europa League fixture. The Hoops take on Ferryn van at the unusual kickoff time of 3.30pm on Tuesday, October 19th and supporters attending will need to provide a vaccine passport to prove they're fully protected against COVID-19. Celtic have provided an update to fans following the Scottish Government legislation change. The new law, which has been delayed for three weeks, means that supporters must provide proof of their double-jabbed status at all stadiums across Scotland where the crowd is greater than 10,000. A Hoop spokesperson said, Celtic FC are obliged to follow Scottish Government legislation and would like to thank our supporters in advance for their patience, cooperation and understanding. Random spot checks will be carried out by stewards on approach to Celtic Park in line with the Scottish Government guidance and all supporters attending must be prepared to provide proof of vaccination or exemption. Please ensure you arrive as early as possible on match day to avoid any delays in entering the stadium while these checks take place. Fans will build to show passport by printing a certificate, showing a digital copy of their status or downloading the NHS Scotland COVID Check app. Supporters who are exempt from a vaccination must be prepared to provide evidence of this. These groups included, under the age of 18, not able to get the vaccine for medical reasons, taking part in vaccine trials and match day employees and volunteers. That article was by Ewan Payton. Recorded from the Herald on the 14th of October 2021. From the Sports section. St Mirren have made incredible offer to Jamie McGrath to remain at the club. By Ewan Payton. St Mirren have made an incredible offer to Jamie McGrath to remain at the Paisley Club. The Ireland International has been a sensational find for the Premiership side since joining in January 2020. McGrath 25 was on the brink of a dramatic deadline day move to Hibs but some 11th-hour stumbling blocks halted the move, which was also due to see Scott Allen and Drew Wright move in the opposite direction. Now, boss Jim Goodwin and the club are doing all that they can to persuade the Irish talent to stay put in Paisley. Goodwin told the media, We're all extremely proud of what Jamie has achieved in the last 18 months. I watched the first hour of the Ireland game against Qatar, and Jamie was excellent again. We're delighted for him. The kind of character he is, he could have thrown his toys out of the pram when the deal wasn't allowed to happen, but he's got on with things. He's shown he's willing to give us all for our jersey while he's here. We've made an incredible offer to Jamie. We need to make that clear. We've made him an offer we've never made a player in the history of the club. But we're not stupid. We know he's going to have numerous other offers and no doubt someone might come in and blow us out of the water. We want Jamie to know exactly what we think of him and reward him with a great contract. Whether he takes it up or Takes it or not, it's up to him. But our supporters need to know we're not giving up hope just yet. That article was by Ewan Peyton.
4: From the Herald Scotland, dated Thursday 14th October 21, from the Voices section. The ugly high-rise buildings I would fight to save. An article by Mark Smith, feature writer. There's been a bit of a stushy about high-rise flats in Aberdeen that we should talk about because it touches on a few interesting questions such as what is beautiful and what isn't, what we should preserve and what we should pull down, the role that class plays in the way we look at buildings and the importance of the two landscapes we live in, the real and the imagined. The buildings in question are ones I know pretty well. They were put up in the 1960s in the Castle Hill and Gallowgate areas of Aberdeen and around the Mount Hooley roundabout. Essentially, they were designed to solve the same problem other cities were facing, slum housing and affordable living. But they were much better quality than many of the ones in Glasgow, for example, that have since been pulled down. Now, I know people can't live in nostalgia although I give it a good try, to be fair. But one of the reasons I love the buildings is they are a big presence on the map of my childhood and youth. I never lived in any of the eight blocks myself, although I knew people that did. And when I was a kid, Virginia Court in particular seemed like a wonderful place. Set high up on Castle Hill, it felt like the future, like a place from Logan's Run or Planet of the Apes. And I remember turning to my mother one day and telling her, my finger pointing at the very top of the building, that when I grew up I wanted to live up there, in the sky. Of course it was a childish thought, and I realize kids can't really understand the social problems that sometimes come with high-rises. And the eight blocks in Aberdeen haven't been immune to such problems. Lack of maintenance, for example or the council using some of the flats for troublesome tenants. But on the whole, the blocks are still reasonably popular and affordable places to live. But the bigger question is, do they matter? Aesthetically, I mean. Or historically? Historic Environment Scotland believes so, and has granted them a listed status, which some MPs and the council have described as ludicrous. Several of the residents have also expressed concern that list status will mean the cost of living in them will go up and in the end Aberdeen Council have appealed to the government and a decision is expected in the next few days. The concerns of the residents are totally understandable, although I would say that listing a building shouldn't necessarily mean that it is expensively preserved in the same way forever not least because climate change means we're going to have to modify old buildings. The cost of maintaining a building is also one that needs to be solved separately from the question of whether we should preserve it. We need to ask what is worth protecting and then work out how to pay for it. And I do think the eight Aberdeen blocks are worth protecting for a number of reasons. Some consider them ugly, But I wonder where that instinct comes from. Is it because we're told the buildings that matter are churches and concert halls and parliaments? Or is it something deeper, the old British problem? Is it because the buildings are mostly lived in by ordinary people? Is it because they are homes for the working class and therefore cannot really matter? Is it, in other words, all about snobbery? I suspect this may be playing a part in what's going on in Aberdeen but the reasons given by Historic Environment Scotland are convincing. There are lots of examples of bad social housing but the Aberdeen blocks are an exception. They are well built, they incorporate granite and as examples of brutalist architecture they fit really well into Aberdeen's landscape. Let's face it, A city built from granite on the edge of the North Sea can be a pretty brutal and grey place. But those high blocks of flats, particularly the one on Castle Hill, are also beautiful, and I don't mean beautiful in the traditional sense, the snobbish sense. I mean they represent a good idea, or did. I mean they belong in the imagined landscape as well as the real one. And I mean that they demonstrate that because we built a certain way in the past, doesn't mean we have to build the same way in the future. You can call them ugly if you want to, but I would fight to save them. This article is by Mark Smith.
2: Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 14th of October 2021. Arts and Entertainments. April in Spain by John Banville. Reviewed by Rosemary Goring. By Rosemary Goring, Columnist. April in Spain, John Banville, Faber and Faber, £14.99. Review by Rosemary Goring. The title of John Banville's latest foray into crime sounds more like a romance than his usual exploration of political and institutional corruption, but there's no need to fear he has gone soft, or at least not entirely. Build is the next in his new series featuring the Anglo Irish detective inspector St. John Strafford. April in Spain opens instead in the company of Banville's morose and troubled pathologist, Quirk. The presiding presence in Banville's first crime series, which was written under the pseudonym of Benjamin Black, a device he has since abandoned, Quirk is reluctantly on holiday in San Sebastian with his wife. His marriage to the Austrian psychiatrist Dr Evelyn Blake might come as a surprise to some readers, who doubtless thought the alcoholic, misanthropic and short-tempered quirk was too consumed by demons to settle. It's even more of a shock to him. Five years into this happy relationship, he'd been married before, but never like this. No, never like this. He prays that he never loses her. The pathologist's usual stamping ground of rain-sodden 1950s Dublin is a more atmospheric backdrop for delving into the murkiest corners of Irish finality than sunny 1960s Spain. Yet Banville manages to convey both the pleasurable tedium of a holiday, where there's nothing to do but eat, drink and take to bed in the afternoon, and the potential for the sinister in a place as picturesque and seemingly benign. St John, pronounced Sinjin, does not make an appearance until well into the book. By then it feels an age since his previous outing in Snow, In this sub-zero murder investigation on the eve of christmas he was pitched into his own aristocratic and autocratic milieu as he solved the murder and mutilation of a priest some of the chill of that winter bound tale clings to him still since sinjin is not a demonstrative man but he is attractive which fact quirk's daughter phoebe registers the detective inspector is summoned to spain when quirk believes he has spotted one of phoebe's old friends a young woman whose brother, in a previous novel, confessed to murdering her. When he asks his daughter to come to Spain to confirm his suspicions, she is dispatched with the protective detective in tow. Quirk's aimless holiday is interleaved with the first-person ruminations of a revolting character called Terry Tice, an orphan whose Dublin upbringing was unspeakable. He's a stock figure of gangland horror, familiar with the craze and their kind. In Banville's hands, he's pitiful and terrifying. Swaggering around town in his too short, crisply creased fawn trousers, he occasionally feels vestigial remorse for his actions. The sort of figure found in movies, he mutters hey hey like a cartoon villain, which in some respects he is. A hired assassin, he finds his path taking him from London to Dublin and then to San Sebastian. Banville enjoys describing Quirk's placid, unperturbable wife, his large, soft-eyed, mystifying wife, as loving and lightsome as ever. Wholly tolerant of her husband's ill-humours, she has a background to match the misery of his orphaned childhood. Where Quirk was traumatised by his early years, her family was wiped out in Holocaust, which she narrowly escaped. Further tragedy was to follow. Thus, with the arrival of Terry Tice, the players are in place, three wounded individuals drawn together by accident, yet as if preordained. As always with Banville, plot is less important than prose. The drama in his crime fiction, and this one in particular is operatic. It is on an almost mythological dimension, as implacable forces shape human affairs. While St. John might have grounds for feeling shortchanged with the scant lines devoted to him, the story is satisfyingly rich, bringing together Quirk's family and their past and possible future. Equally, if not more importantly, April in Spain turns the spotlight on 1960s Dublin. Although part of the pleasure of Banville's detective stories lie in their understated evocation of the recent past, his emphasis is on showing that the upper echelons of government and society were mired in hypocrisy, corruption and violence. In that sense, the plot feels simultaneously timeless and modern. By Rosemary Goring
3: The Herald, Friday the 15th of October 2021 News Sir Billy Connolly reveals he has lost the ability to write due to Parkinson's. This article is by Caitlin Dewar. Sir Billy Connolly has said losing the ability to write breaks my heart because he loved writing letters. The 78-year-old comedian, also known as The Big Yin, was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 2013 and retired from live performances five years later. But he has continued to record programmes and make TV appearances. The Scottish star appeared on The Graham Norton Show via video link from Florida, where he lives, to talk about his new autobiography, Windswept and Interesting. He told Norton, I have lost the ability to write and it breaks my heart as I used to love writing letters to people. My writing went down the swanee and is totally illegible. So I had to find a way to record everything. But then the recorder didn't understand my accent. So it kept collapsing and my family would have to sort it. It was a club effort. Explaining the title of the book, he said, The rules of being windswept and interesting are doing as you please and not taking lessons from anyone. Sir Billy gave an update about living with Parkinson's and said he has good days and bad days. It's creeping up on me and it never lets go. I walk like a drunk man and have to have help, so life is different. But it is good, he said. Other guests on the show include Doctor Who star Jodie Whittaker, Olympic diver Tom Daly, actress Dame Aileen Atkins, and comedian and writer Sir Lenny Henry, with a musical performance from Coldplay. Whitaker, 39, said in July that she would be leaving the sci-fi drama after taking over the TARDIS in 2017 as the first female Doctor. Asked about her forthcoming final series, she told Norton, I'm not allowed to tell you anything, but I can say the first episode is out on Halloween and it is a six-episode story arc. It's like a six-hour film and it's amazing. The actress will make her exit from the BBC programme in a trio of specials next year. Whitaker said she does not know who the new Doctor is and that scenes have been filmed but the new Doctor wasn't there. I wasn't there for Peter Capaldi and I only met him months later when I passed him in the street, she added. It's a Sin star and singer Ollie Alexander and actress Michaela Cole have been mentioned as favourites to replace Whitaker but the BBC has not made an official announcement. Sir Lenny Henry spoke about his debut children's book, The Boy With Wings, and described it as his lockdown project. The 63-year-old said it's a sort of superhero origin story, basically. I opened my head and poured out everything I remembered about comics. There is a lot of me in the book. I was bullied at school and I wish I had those superpowers. The Graham Norton Show airs on BBC One at 10.35pm on Friday and is also available on BBC iPlayer. This article is by Caitlin Dewar.
5: From the Herald, Friday the 15th of October 2021 Sports section Bruce Mowat on Pride of Double Olympics Team GB call-up Article by Susan egostaff Bruce Mowat is a self-confessed Olympic geek, for as long as he can remember, the 27-year-old has been something of a fanatic of all things Olympic Games, which makes the prospect of making his own Olympic debut, as well as a little bit of Olympic history, all the more thrilling. Yesterday, the first GB athletes for the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing were unveiled, with Mowat becoming the first British curler to compete at two events in the Olympic Games having had his selection for both the men's and the mixed team confirmed. Moet may still be relatively young in curling circles, but having spent over 20 years dreaming about becoming an Olympian, he admits he is struggling to express quite how it feels to be fulfilling a lifelong ambition. I'm a total Olympic geek. I could go pretty far back being able to tell you where the Games were and who won medals. I'm really obsessed by it, the Edinburgh native says it's starting to sink in that I'm going to the Olympic Games myself. I have a school daughter from when I was in primary 6, so I was about 10 years old, where we had to write about our past, our present and our future. And for my future, I said I was going to become an Olympian. This is something I've been striving towards for a long, long time. So to finally know that it's happening is very special, and it's hard to put into words quite how much joy I'm feeling right now. The opening ceremony of the 2022 Games may still be over three months away, but already the pressure is beginning to mount on Mawat. He will skip the men's team, which also includes Grant Hardy, Bobby Lamy, and Hyatt Hami McMillan, with Ross White as alternate, and will partner Jane Dodds in the mixed doubles. As current world silver medalist in the men's event and reigning world champions in the mixed doubles, more to set the bar incredibly high despite the fact that Beijing will mark his Olympic debut as it will for his five teammates. However, he remains undaunted by his inexperience in the greatest stage of them all. Just because we've got the world title in the mix and a world medal in the men's obviously doesn't mean we'll automatically go on to be successful in the Olympics. It's not that straightforward. But what we have shown, in the men's particularly, that even when we go to big events for the first time we can do well he says and in the mix we're a newer team but i've known jane for 20 years and we're good friends so we're able to have a difficult conversation in the ice that you need to have when you're in tough spots so i think we'll be prepared few athletes get anywhere near the podium on their first visit to an olympic games but moat is adamant he will not be satisfied with merely becoming an olympian come february his rank's recent successes on the global stage, including skipping the men's team to an unprecedented double when they claimed back-to-back Grand Slam titles in Canada earlier this year, means he will head to Beijing with his sights firmly set in silverware. I've been dreaming about being on the Olympic podium for a long time, although I've not actually thought too much about it now it's a realistic prospect, he says. We're going there to medal. None of us think we're going to go there just to make up the numbers. And the past successes we've had at international level have given us the confidence in ourselves. When we're playing at our best, we're very tough to beat. And that piece was written by Susan Egglestaff.
4: From the Herald Scotland dated Friday 15th October 2021 from the Voices section. Don't Be That Guy Police Scotland campaign is long overdue. An article by Catriona Stewart. After a year of airy emptiness, Glasgow's West End is full of freshers everywhere. It's heartbreaking and joyous to overhear snatches of conversation. Young people giving directions towards a university campus, pairs and trios of new acquaintances trying each other out to see who fits. I was driving into the city at midnight last night and the streets were still busy, kids mingling under street lamps. On the way back, at 1am, it was emptier and a lot darker. My headlamps caught a form spinning into the road. A young woman, a little tipsy, picking something up that she had dropped. She snatched it up and returned to walking on the pavement. Young, alone, well refreshed. The early hours. What do you do? You want her to have fun, to feel free. And to be safe. The instinct is to screech the brakes, roll down the window, and then what? Ask if she's okay? Tell her you're scared for her safety? Tell her to watch out? Frighten her? Make her smaller? Make her feel any negative consequence is her fault for not modifying her behaviour? The Met police would say she's fine. She can just wave a bus down if there's any trouble. North Yorkshire Police Commissioner Philip Allett would have told her to make sure she just learnt a bit about that legal process and be a bit streetwise. But presumably after his resignation he's going to cease any suggestions. I wouldn't be telling her anything new. All children are taught about stranger danger. But early on the messaging splits and for girls it becomes about self-preservation amid pervasive male violence and misogyny. The instructions are fearful and unlimited. Don't go here. Don't wear that. Keep your keys in your hand. Let someone know where you're going. If something goes wrong, it's your fault. I would also be a hypocrite. I love walking home at night and going running at night. These are my streets and I refuse to be intimidated into not using them as I want and when I want. But I know that's a foolish minority strategy. Boys are not intimidated into relentless daily strategizing. Imagine they were. Every time a woman's attack was in the news, a police commissioner might appear. And tell men to ensure they stay at home after dark so as not to frighten women walking on the streets. When you leave a nightclub, young man, be sure to phone a friend and let them know where you are so your movements and behaviour is modified and monitored. Lads, keep your keys in your hand so the jagged metal serves as a reminder not to rape anyone on your way home. Make sure someone else knows where you will be and when you'll be home. If you're late, they'll worry you've been distracted by carrying out sexual harassment, and they'll check on you, keep you out of trouble. Carry an alarm in your back pocket, and if you feel like a sexual predator, then set it off to alert women to stay away from you. Of course we don't do this because men aren't being used to being told what to do. Women are Women are constantly told to be kind, be accommodating, move over, share, de escalate, smile, love. It's easier to make suggestions for women to modify themselves, to scrunch themselves a little tighter and take up less space to allow the looming, stretching presence of men. Men are the problem women have to do the work to solve. At a structural level, we form charities in order to tackle male violence against us. We set out refuges and support services. At a personal level, we're expected to keep our own men in check. During children's panel training 10 years ago, I remember being told that the majority of troubled young men sort themselves out by the age of 25 when they meet a nice girl who helps soothe them and settle them down. In court, week after week and twice today, defence solicitors reassure sheriffs with the fact their clients have a good woman at home who will straighten them out. Clueless politicians show clunking ignorance on the issue. Dominic Raab say, stating misogyny can be a woman against a man. And there we go, having to explain and set right. So much explaining all the time. It is not the responsibility of women to sort men out, but of course it is. It's bloody tiresome. So what sweet relief to see the new Police Scotland campaign, hashtag don't be that guy, public messaging that asks men to look themselves in the eye and recognise that they are part of a structural system that harms women, and that messaging is unflinching. If you have catcalled a woman and made her uncomfortable, you are that guy. If you've stood by and let friends make sexist comments about women, you're that guy. If you've pushed a woman into doing things that make her uncomfortable or gotten her drunk to lower her inhibitions, you are that guy. Stop expecting women to clean up the mess. Sort it out amongst yourselves. Be the sharp jab in the ribs that tells your mate to shut up. Walk home an inebriated friend who's itching for trouble. Check your pals are home after a night out. Respect women's boundaries. We don't need new apps to support women's safety. We need men to step up and look honestly at themselves and each other. Importantly, Don't be affronted and go along the time-sapping route of whinging about not all men being a problem. Even if you don't view yourself as a problem, are you working on making a difference to fight the continuum of harassment and aggression women face every day? If you're passive, you're part of the problem. It's such a relentless double punch to be subjected to male harassment and violence and have to develop mitigations against it. It's such a relentless burden and so very overdue, the idea we might meaningfully hand it over. Here, take it. If you don't willingly have your hands out, then you're that guy. Don't be. This article was by Catriona Stewart.
2: Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 15th of October 2021. Arts and Entertainments West Highland Museum planned to host Stuart Exhibition by Caroline Wilson, senior reporter Rare paintings of the exiled Stuart dynasty could be brought home to Scotland for the first time under ambitious plans by a small Highland museum. Curators have been offered exclusive access to a private collection owned by the Peninski Foundation in Liechtenstein, of the family that inspired the Jacobite cause included a recently rediscovered portrait of a 16-year-old Bonnie Prince Charlie by renowned Venetian artist Rosalba Carriera, which is believed to be the only portrait of the prince that predates the 1745 Jacobite Rising. Others, such as a portrait of an elderly Prince Charles Edward Stuart by Hugh Douglas Hamilton, painted in Rome in 1786, were last displayed in Scotland and Glasgow in 1910. West Highland Museum in Fort William hopes to stage a three-month exhibition next year to mark its centenary year. The planned show will include 13 paintings of four generations of the Royal House of Stuart, including James Brackets the old pretender, and his wife, Princess Clementina Sobieska, through to Prince Charles Edward Stuart, better known as Bonnie Prince Charlie, and his daughter Charlotte, the Duchess of Albany. The series of paintings end with Charlotte's daughter, Princess Marie Victorie de Rohan. The West Islay Museum needs to raise £25,000 to stage the exhibition, and is hoping the public will get behind its newly launched crowdfunding campaign. Museum director Chris Robinson said, It will likely be the last time these iconic portraits will be displayed in the United Kingdom, as they may soon be in permanent display at a European museum. We need your help in raising funds to make this happen and bring Bonnie Prince Charlie and the exiled Stuarts back to Scotland. The Stuart family can be traced back to 11th century Brittany where for at least four generations they were stewards to the Counts of Dole. In the early 12th century the third son of the fourth steward of Dole entered the service of David I, King of Scots and was later appointed as steward. Walter married Marjorie daughter of King Robert I, brackets, the Bruce, close brackets in 1315, and in 1371 their son Robert, as King Robert II, became the first Stuart King of Scotland. The Stuart line was interrupted in 1649 by the establishment of the Commonwealth, but was restored in 1660. In total, nine Stuart monarchs ruled Scotland alone from 1371 until 1603, the last of which was James VI, before his accession in England. The British crown passed to the House of Hanover in 1714. The first of their kings, George I, was only 52nd in line to the throne, but the nearest Protestant according to the Act of Settlement. Charles Edward Stuart led a failed attempt to reinstate the family to the throne, beginning with the 1745 rebellion in Lochaber. Museum curator Vanessa Martin said, The museum is world famous for its Jacobite exhibitions and has built up an important collection since the museum's inception in 1922. The Jacobite rising started here in Lochaber with Prince Charles Edward Stuart raising his father's standard at Glenfinnan in 19 August. For our centenary we have been offered this wonderful opportunity by the Peninsky Foundation to present a public exhibition of rarely displayed royal portraiture. Broadcaster and historian Paul Merton from the BBC Scotland's Grand Tours of Scotland series is backing the campaign and hosts the campaign video. Those who contribute to the campaign will be offered incentives including a guided tour of the exhibition with Edward Corp, Professor of British History at the University of Toulouse, and art historian Peter Paninski. Chair of Directors of the Museum, Ian Peter MacDonald, said An exhibition of this calibre and local relevance will bring pride to our community and inspire enthusiasts from all over to come and visit our town. By Caroline Wilson
3: The Herald, Monday the 18th of October 2021 News Annual cost of ministerial offices has almost doubled under SNP This article is by Alistair Grant the annual cost of ministerial offices have almost doubled under the SNP, Scottish Labour has said. Excluding the First Minister and the Deputy First Minister, the yearly cost of ministerial salaries, office staff and advisors has risen from around £2.4 million in the SNP's first government in 2007 to more than £4.5 million in 2021, the party said. Overall, the extra costs total more than £10 million over the course of the parliamentary term. The number of Cabinet Secretaries has doubled from four to eight in this time, Labour said, while the number of Ministers has increased from 10 to 17. The number of Special advisers has risen from nine to 17. Labour MSP Daniel Johnson said there is no justifying these astounded increases, He said, for years, the SNP have inflicted savage austerity on councils, while sparing no expense funding their own bloated operation. These eye-watering increases might not sting so much if we could see what we were getting in return. Instead, taxpayers are coughing up record amounts of money for a government delivering record levels of failure. No amount of money can buy the SNP a vision for Scotland. But a spokeswoman for Deputy First Minister John Swinney said, Labour's so-called analysis completely overlooks the fact that the responsibilities of the Scottish Government have increased substantially since 2007. Every new power devolved has been used to make Scotland a fairer country, whether that is the more progressive income tax policy or the new social security system. The government is also continuing to deal with the unprecedented challenges of Brexit and the global pandemic. Since 2007, the SNP government has transformed education, strengthened our NHS, introduced Scotland's baby box, and delivered over 100,000 affordable homes. While labour snipe from the sidelines, the SNP Scottish government is getting on with the day job delivering progress and pursuing a progressive, transformative vision for the people of Scotland. This article is by Alistair Grant. The Herald, Monday the 18th of October 2021, News. Boris and Carrie Johnson broke Christmas lockdown to invite friend Nimco Ali over. This article is by Herald Scotland Online. Boris Johnson and his wife Carrie broke strict coronavirus lockdown rules last Christmas to spend the festive period with a friend at number 10, reports have claimed. Harper's Magazine claims Nimco Alley, a political campaigner and Home Office adviser, was invited to Downing Street despite London and the South East being placed under Tier 4 restrictions amid a surge in cases. Number 10 and Mr Johnson's spokesman have both denied that the couple broke their own rules but did not deny that Ali joined them at Christmas. A number 10 spokesman said, The Prime Minister and Mrs Johnson have followed coronavirus rules at all times. It is totally untrue to suggest otherwise. The Harper's Magazine article was written by Lara Prendergast executive editor of The Spectator, which Mr Johnson used to edit. His official spokesman will face further questions about the incident today as he takes questions from Westminster journalists. London and the south of England had been placed under strict COVID lockdown just a week before Christmas. Plans to allow mixing between households were scrapped, with social mixing restricted to just one person in an open public space unless people lived with them or they were part of their existing support bubble. Ali, who's godmother to the Johnsons' son Wilfred, was handed a top role at the Home Office last year. She was appointed an advisor on tackling violence against women and girls in October and is said to be earning £350 a day. The post was not advertised. This article is by herald scotland online
5: from herald scotland monday the 18th of october 2021 from the sports section cricket chris grieve stars as scotland shock bangladesh at t20 world cup by green mcpherson scotland more than earned their stripes against the tigers few had given them a chance of defeating bangladesh in their opening game at the t20 world cup A side sitting sixth in the world and they claimed recent warm-up series wins over Australia and New Zealand. Those inside the Saltires camp, however, felt differently, believing they have a group c- capable of not only reaching the Super 12 phase, but competing with the game's big guns when they got- get there. This six-run win further vindicated that stands. It was a helter-skelter of a contest, as Scotland recovered from a dramatic batting collapse that saw them slip to th- 53 for six, to post a total of 140 for 9, thanks mainly to a record-breaking 7 for wicket partnership between Mark Watt and Chris Greaves. The latter was making only his second ever T20 international appearance for his adopted country and we go on to further burnish his credentials by taking two wickets with the ball to prevent Bangladesh from ever really getting into their stride. A big six in the final over made it tighter than it really ought to have been the case but Shane Berger's men deservedly got over the line by the end to spark a raucous rendition of "Fire of Scotland in the dressing room. A victory in the final two group games against Papua New Guinea tomorrow, or a man tomorrow, will likely see them pass safely through them and Burger could not scarcely hide his glee at the start his team had made. We're buzzing. It's a wonderful feeling when a plan comes together, he said. We believe this is the start of the World Cup journey for us. We set high goals and aspirations and while tonight was incredibly close, it was good to see that even in tough positions we still believed. The greatest compliment I can give this team this evening is that we belonged on that field and I'm incredibly proud. It was an inspiring performance from the lads and I'm really happy but we know there's a lot still to do. We've always believed that we could beat them but we also know that this is just another game and we're going to have to put it behind us pretty quickly because we have another one coming in a couple of days. We also know that this competition, that any team can beat any other team, so we can't take our eye off the ball. That the victory was largely achieved by a player who was recently working as a delivery man made the occasion even more remarkable. As Captain Kel Kutzer revealed, I'm really proud of Grievo as he sacrificed a lot, he said. He was driving about delivering parcels for Amazon not that long ago and now he's out here running the man of the match against Bangladesh. It was an incredible day for Chris but it certainly wasn't a surprise for us. We knew he had the ability to do that as he's shown some exciting skills for us so far on this tour. It was so nice to see him with the belief that he had when he took on the Bangladesh bowlers. Like his head coach, Kutzer, who celebrated his 200th appearance was not surprised with what Scotland had achieved. He added, It's a great feeling. It's something we believed we could achieve. It didn't quite go all our way but it's a special feeling to beat Bangladesh. They gave us a lesson at the start of the innings so it took a real fighting effort today. I kept telling the players we were never out of the game. We wanted to make a scene and this is our opportunity and platform to do that. It's a huge one for us. It's something we've been planning for a long time, when we had hardly played cricket for two years. I'm really proud of everyone. We will take a lot of confidence from that day as Bangladesh are an, an extremely good side. Ultimately, coming out winners was really important for us. We still have room to improve but this is undoubtedly a massive step in the right direction. Scotland hadn't got off to a great start and Coetzer lost a toss and then was bowled for a 7-ball duck. George Munsey offered some spark with 29, but when he and Matt Cross, 11, fell in the same over, and Richie Bennington Michael Leask and Cal McLeod went on lo- not long after, the Scots looked up against it. Instead, Greaves' fighting spirit, however, sparked a comeback that will live long in the memory. And that article was written by Graeme McPherson. From Herald Scotland, Monday the 18th of October 2021, from the Sports section, Rangers boss Stephen Gerrard named on three-man shortlist for Newcastle job, article by Aidan Smith. Rangers boss Stephen Gerrard has been named on a three-man shortlist for the Newcastle job, according to reports. The two are set to step up their search for a new manager this week, with Steve Bruce expected to be relieved of his duties. The Times says Gerard is a leading candidate for the role alongside Roberto Martinez and Unai Emery. Asked if he would be in charge for Newcastle's next match, Bruce said on Sky Sports, that is for other people to decide. If I was reading everything or seeing everything last week, I may not have been here today, but my job is to get results. If you're not winning in seven or eight, you come under pressure, and that is the Premier League. It is a big league for big boys and I will carry on the best I can until told otherwise. Gerard was questioned about the Newcastle job last week and he said I don't really react or get involved in any kind of speculation especially when there is someone who I have the utmost respect for sitting in that job that the speculation is about. For me, I'm in a very big job here that I am fully focused on and we have a top of the table clash at the weekend. And this is a game I'm very much looking forward to. But I certainly have one eye in Newcastle in terms of Brissy getting his 1,000th game. A great character of the game. Someone for whom I have a great personal relationship with and the utmost respect for. I'm looking forward to seeing him getting his 1,000th game. I think it is a massive achievement so congratulations to him at the weekend. And that article was written by Aidan Smith
4: sunrise sunset and lighting up times as of monday eighteenth october twenty twenty one sunrises seven fifty four a m sunsets six oh eight pm lighting up six o eight pm
3: the herald tuesday the nineteenth of october twenty twenty one news canada study of exercise motivation shows surprising results this article is by caroline wilson the threat of illness or death was more effective in motivating people to exercise than obesity risk a study found in results that surprised researchers previous studies particularly on smoking cessation and risky sexual behavior found that messages related to mortality could be a barrier to acknowledging health risks, but this new research found it had the opposite effect. The study asked 669 research participants to indicate how persuasive five types of messages were in terms of motivating them to work out at home with a fitness app. It found that illness or death-related messaging was more likely to encourage exercise participation ...than obesity, social stigma or cost to the health service, regardless of gender. Researchers said they expected obesity-related messages to be motivational... ...given that it is associated with the leading causes of global mortality. The more users that were motivated by illness and or death-related messages... ...the more they were likely they have to have high outcome expectations believe in their ability to perform a health behaviour and regulate themselves towards achieving the health goals. An estimated 66% of Scottish adults aged 16 years and over met the guideline to do at least 150 minutes of moderate or 75 minutes of vigorous exercise each week in 2019. I did not expect only illness and death related messages to be significant and motivational said Kiamut Oyebo, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Waterloo School of Public Health Sciences in Canada, which carried out the research. He said previous research had indicated that the public is likely to trust authority figures or bodies, such as the World Health Organization, which warns that 6% of the world's death is caused by physical inactivity. Nearly everyone would have known a friend or family member who has passed away due to non-communicable diseases caused by physical inactivity such as hypertension, diabetes or stroke. Not only were illness and death-related messages motivational, they had a significant relationship with self-regulatory belief and outcome expectation and there was no significant difference between males and females. This study is important because it helps us, especially designers of health apps, understand the types of messages that individuals, regardless of gender, are likely to be motivated by in persuasive health communication and that are likely to influence individuals' social cognitive beliefs about exercise. Oyebo said future studies should consider other demographic characteristics besides gender, Mm -hmm. such as age, Culture, race, and education to uncover the role they play in persuasive health communication. This article is by Caroline Wilson. The Herald, Tuesday, the 19th of October 2021. News HGV shortage could last until 2023 and is not getting better, experts warn. This article is by Hannah Roger. The UK's lorry driver shortage is not visibly getting better and could last until 2023, MPs have heard. Industry leaders from the haulage, recruitment and food sectors warned at the Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, BEIS, committee today over the current scale and impact of driver shortages. The Road Haulage Association, RHA, has previously warned of a shortage of around 100,000 drivers and said the issue has not improved despite efforts from government. Figures revealed by the Office for National Statistics, ONS, earlier on Tuesday showed that driver numbers have plunged by 53,000 over the past four years, largely driven by retiring drivers not being replaced fast enough by new recruits. Duncan Buchanan, Director of Policy at RHA, told the committee members that his warnings last year about such a crisis were not heeded and added that the government's visa scheme to attract short-term HGV drivers was ineffective. He said that if ministers were to design a scheme that was set up to fail, the current scheme was a prime example of it and called for it to be made longer, at least a year, rather than for three months. Asked by SNP MP Alan Brown why his previous warnings on shortages were not heeded, Mr Buchanan said, I think to some extent there was complacency. The toxicity around saying anything that can be seen as related to Brexit colours people's actions. He said his organisation had never taken a position on Brexit and had simply tried to warn politicians about what they thought could be coming. Mr Buchanan continued, sometimes people hear what we say and they think it's from a particular perspective. There has been some element of not really believing that this was going to happen. Things are very challenging at the moment. There are widespread shortages of lorry drivers, which are leading delays and frustrated trips. Among our members, we are still getting reports that this hasn't eased at all. Things are not visibly getting better at this stage, and I know there are a number of measures that have been put in place, stepping up training, stepping up tests, but on the ground, that isn't having much of an effect. Last week, the government announced a change to cabotage rules to allow foreign HGV drivers to make an unlimited number of pickups and drop-offs in order to help ease the supply chain disruption. It had also previously announced measures such as 5,000 three-month long visas for non-UK lorry drivers. Mr Buchanan warned that the change to cabotage rules will suppress wages, which have been rapidly increasing as a result of high demand. He said wages have risen by between 10% and 20% over the past six months depending on location and area of the sector. The Trade Body Director also said that institutional complacency in the Department for Transport about Freight had contributed to the issues. Neil Carberry, Chief Executive of the Recruitment and Employment Confederation added that snobbery in policy making has contributed suggesting that sufficient training resources have not been given to certain sectors, such as haulage. Meanwhile, the Chief Executive of the Food and Drink Federation stressed that there is enough food, but getting some products to shelves is still being impacted by supply challenges. Ian Wright also stressed that soaring food inflation amid rising wage, energy and commodity costs poses a particularly large challenge. The committee really needs to think seriously about inflation, he said. In hospitality, inflation is running between 14% and 18%, which is terrifying. If the Prime Minister is, and I know he is, serious about levelling up, inflation is a bigger scourge than almost anything because it discriminates against the poor. This article is by Hannah Roger. Recorded from the Herald
1: on the 19th of October 2021. From the Sports Section. Robbie Nielsen hit with SFA charge after an incident with Rangers ace Wahine Bakana by Aidan Smith. Hearts boss Robbie Nielsen has been hit with an SFA charge after a row with referee Don Robertson during Saturday's Scottish Premiership class with Rangers. The altercation came about after Ibrox midfielder, Onino Bacana was flashed a yellow card for appearing to grab Stephen Kingsley by the throat. Both players were shown yellow cards, but Nielsen felt Bacchina should have seen red. As a result of his protest, Nielsen was sent off, and he missed Craig Halkett's late equaliser for the Tynecastle outfit. Nielsen has been offered a one-match ban by the SFA, but Hearts could appeal the charge. Nielsen said on Saturday, I didn't see the goal, but I just heard the silence, which was nice. I was delighted. I was in the tunnel area and couldn't get down. I was disappointed to get the second yellow, but that's football. But look, when you come to these places, you're not going to get those decisions. It was a stonewaller. That article was by Aidan Smith.
4: From the Herald Scotland dated Tuesday 19th October 2021. From the Voices section. The Rolling Stones. Brown Sugar. Mick and Keith are right to act song. An article by Mark Eady. Stone me, brown sugar's gone sour, the headline screamed. Mick and Keith have caved in to the woke brigade by axing their seminal stonker from their tour set list. Cue much frothing at the mouth from the usual right-wing suspects. The age of woke is beyond a joke, they held, branding the Glimmer Twins cowards, for pandering to minority extremists. Case closed. The theatrical outrage over Jagger and Rich's decision to retire for the time being, the blistering opening track from their Sticky Fingers album, was as predictable as it was lazy. After all, the reasoning goes. What is the world coming to when wealthy white pensioners are made to feel uncomfortable singing about black slavery, rape, heroin and torture? Joking aside, I see this less as a victory for cancel culture, more a dawning of realisation in an age of heightened consciousness. Critics argue the track contains some of the most stunningly crude and offensive lyrics ever written. Indeed, it does throw up some eye-wateringly inappropriate lines when viewed through the optics of today's more sensitive times. Quote, Scarred old slaver knows he's doing all right. Hear him whip the women just around midnight. Didn't bat an Live in the 70s. But even for an era when ethnic appropriation and sexist attitudes were seldom if ever questioned, the song is pretty nasty stuff. They weren't alone. Hendrix, Young and the Beatles all sung about shooting or beating their old lady, stroke baby, stroke woman while even ten years later, the police's Every Breath You Take reads like a stalker's charter. The real problem lies in playing brown sugar live today, thereby perpetuating what should have been shown the red card years ago. It's amazing it's lasted so long. The Stones themselves haven't exactly been unequivocal in their decision to drop it. With Jagger hinting they may put it back in, while Richards insists the lyrics are a condemnation of slavery. But whatever their motivation, the decision is an astute one and bears all the hallmarks of why the brand has been so enduring. Indeed, it was 60 years ago on Sunday the dynamic duo first met. And well, the rest is history. Jagger was even aware of brown sugar's damaging potential in the 90s when he said he would... Never write that song now. To be seen as dangerous and edgy is one thing, but to be out of step with current cultural norms is bad business. So rather than being hounded out of Dodge by woke zealots, as the permanently offended would have us believe, the rock veterans are doing what they do best, picking up on the zeitgeist. For me, the song's visceral appeal lies more in its pulsating guitar riff than in its words. I wouldn't object to it being played live with altered lyrics. This isn't censorship, more a nuanced response to changing attitudes. If you want to listen to Brown Sugar, then play it at home. As a historic reference point to one of music's greatest acts at the height of their powers, it stands out. But let's show some sympathy for the old devils. They haven't sold out. The Rolling Stones are the ultimate rock survivors. Pulling the plug on brown sugar proves that. This article is by Mark Eady.
6: This article is from The Herald. Date 19th October 2021. From the Arts section. Issue of the Day plot twist in the tale of award-winning Spanish female writer by Maureen Sugden In a plot twist no one saw coming, a celebrated Spanish female author is not who she seems after she was awarded a 1 million euro prize and three middle-aged men stood up to collect it. This sounds like a novel in itself. Indeed, the saga has gripped Spain where the winner of the one million euro Premio Planeta da Nibela Prize, the world's highest paying literary award, was announced at a ceremony in Barcelona attended by King Philippe VI. And the winner was Carmen Mola, who everyone thought was a female Spanish crime thriller author known for her rather gory works featuring police inspector Yelena Blanco. The prize was for her book, The Beast, a historical thriller set during the 1834 cholera pandemic in Madrid. What was known about Mola? Prior to last Friday's ceremony, her publisher, Penguin Random House, said Mola was the pseudonym of a female writer born in Madrid, who was a mother of three and a university professor who wrote crime thrillers in her spare time and preferred her privacy. A photograph on her publisher's website showed a woman with her back to the camera. And her works are big sellers. Three books have sold more than 200,000 copies together, translated into 11 languages, and are being adapted for TV by Viacom CBS International Studios. Fans were ardent. Just last summer, a branch of Spain's Women's Institute said MOLA's The Girl novel, part of the Blanco trilogy, was one of the must-read works by women that help us understand the reality and experiences of women. However, well, when the award was announced, three men, George Diaz, Augustin Martinez and Antonio Mercero, went up on stage to collect it. The trio are, in fact, TV scriptwriters in their 40s and 50s who've worked on Spanish series such as On Duty Pharmacy and Central Hospital. What was their reasoning? In an interview with Spanish newspaper El Piaz, Mercero said they didn't hide behind a woman, we hid behind a name. And Diaz was quoted in the Financial Times as saying, we are three friends who, one day, four years ago, decided to combine our talent to tell a story. Meanwhile, Martinez said they decided to work together under one name because collective work is not as valued in literature as in other arts, such as painting or music. They are first, the far from the first to write under the radar. They are in well-charted waters. Mary Ann Evans famously wrote as George Eliot, becoming one of the leading writers of the Victorian era, whose works include Silas Marner and Middlemarch. She opted for a male pseudonym, in part to protect her privacy at a time when she was living with a married man. And J.K. Rowling, Harry Potter author, Miss Rowling, was unmasked as the author of the Cormoran Strike series of novels, under the pen name of Robert Galbraith, saying she had wanted to write without hype or expectation and to receive totally unvarnished feedback. Meanwhile, the true identity of globally renowned Elena Ferrenti, a pseudonymous Italian novelist, whose work Mollas has been compared to, still remains a mystery since the publication of her first novel in 1992. That article was by Maureen Sugden.
0: And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes,
4: with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.